This evening we will be in Luke 22, starting in verse 24. And when you get there, please stand for the reading of God's word. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would, was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the throne judging the twelve tw tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, said I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three, until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when, you, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope... Uh you're getting a sense of the um, disciples and Jesus' relationship as we've been moving now slowly through the text of the Gospel of Luke. Um, this week we encounter once again another uh, situation like many we've seen before it where uh, the disciples and Jesus don't seem to quite be on the same wavelength about things and it becomes rather obvious uh, as we move through the text um, that what Jesus is trying to teach them and what they're picking up, uh, they're... To, they're totally, uh, totally at odds with one another. And so we'll see that uh, more narrowly as we move through the text tonight. But um, I just want to point out, again, this is not the first time we've seen this in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've seen the disciples in Jesus uh, and their disciples' need for correction from Jesus uh, several times already. And if nothing else, that just serve as an encouragement to you if you are also a slow-learning disciple of our Lord. And so um, we turn uh, to these verses tonight. Um, they are... Uh, rather out of place, we might think, from what has just come previously. So if you remember last week we talked about uh, the Lord's Supper, the, the betrayal of Judas, all that's implied there with the new covenant being mentioned. Um, and it seems that the disciples arguing amongst themselves as the, as the start of this week, uh, it doesn't quite seem to align with all of what Jesus was just teaching and uh, going on about. Um, and that's actually kind of the point of the text, is that the disciples are not quite picking up what Jesus is intending to teach them. But the benefit of us reading it so much later uh, is that we, all, we not only have the cross to see this text through, uh, and we not only have the example of the disciples, uh, but we also have Luke, who's kind of guiding us by the hand through these, uh, through these verses to show us uh, what's going wrong and, and what's uh, going right. 
Um, we might be able to sum up the text tonight by saying that it's all about Christ's provision for his disciples. The whole text is about how Christ provides for his disciples, specifically the 12 apostles who are there with him in the upper room. Uh, but no doubt, as we'll see, that provision extends to how he cares also for you and I to this day. So we're going to see Christ's providence all over the text, how he cares and uniquely sustains his people. Um, but first, we need to understand what Christ's providence is like. Okay? So uh, when I was uh, newly a father, uh, Tara and I would often uh, leave the house. And uh, when we leave the house with Calvin in particular, uh, that would look wildly different. So if I was leaving the house with Calvin, um, I might leave with the clothes Calvin was currently wearing, and perhaps, if I remembered it, the bag of uh, the diaper bag, which is where you keep snacks, change of clothes, extra diapers, wipes, all of those other things that you would need for a three-month-old. Um, but I would never check that bag to make sure that there was anything inside of it. I would just trust that that bag already had all of the necessary stuff inside of it to keep Calvin alive for the next four to five hours while I was out and before I would return back home. Uh, what Tara would do when she would go out with Calvin is she would check and stuff and stock the bag with clean clothes, fresh wipes, fresh diapers, toys, and snacks, and all that Calvin would need for the coming uh, hours of his life. Um, and the providence of Christ for his disciples is, is like my wife's providence for me when I would go out with my son. That is to say, she would look ahead and anticipate where I would not know what's going to happen, where I would not know how to prepare, or where I would be too careless to prepare. And she would anticipate that and stock the bag with all of the necessities it, it required. Same thing when she would uh, work overnight and I would need to keep him alive for the next 12 hours while she was gone. Uh, she would tell me, you change him at this time, you put him to bed at this time. All of those things would go out ahead of time. Her, her provision for me was active. It was practical, it was tangible, right? Christ's provision for his disciples is active, it is tangible. It is not some ethereal out there provision where disciples are told, just blindly trust God that he will take care of you. Just blindly trust God that he's looking out for you. It doesn't matter if things are going great or if things are going terrible or if you've had a hard week or you've had a great week or you've been sinning a lot or you've been having a lot of victory. You just got to blindly trust that God has got you in this thing. That's not at all what Christ's provision for his disciples is like. You'll notice about this text, the provision of Christ for his disciples is specific. It names a number of ways in which Jesus anticipates the shortcomings of the disciples and instructs them accordingly, and ways in which he's modeled for them what they ought to do, and ways in which he has anticipated ahead of time how they might fall short, and how he himself is providing for them even as he's not actively with them in what's about to come. The point of this, Christian, is that God and Christ, and the Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, anticipate and know and provide for you in your needs as well, and not in some ethereal, abstract way, but in a tangible, practical, knowable way that you could know his peace and his joy and his comfort. That's what we see in the text tonight. So it starts with the disciples in a place where they need to be reminded of what's been going on. So just a, a brief... Uh, uh, look at verse 24 tells you the disciples are arguing 
And the disciples are arguing. A dispute arose among them. And that dispute is in the context of Jesus having just taught his disciples how he has just poured out his blood and his very body. He will do that shortly on their behalf. And so imagine you're in the upper room. You see Jesus telling his disciples, I love you even unto death. I will die for you. Here is a reminder of my love for you. And then you witness uh, Peter and James and uh, Levi and, and them all start turning to each other and saying, yes, we know Jesus loves us. He cares for us. But which one of us do you think that he likes more? And which one of us do you think is going to be higher on this totem pole of, of, of love? Which one of us is going to be highest in the kingdom? Um, if you grew up with siblings, uh, you know a little bit what this is like because uh, you have parents who love you and who care for you. And often it is the case that when you're older or maybe when you were growing up in that household, you might say to your siblings or, or uh, debate amongst yourselves, which one of us is mom's favorite? Or which one of us is dad's favorite? Or which one of us is the favorite of the children? We're all loved, we're all cared for, we're all fed, we're all housed, we're all here in this family. But which one of us do you think it really came down to it? Do you think they love more? Or do you think they like more? Or do you think they unintentionally favor? Which one of us is in that kind of a position? It's a little bit what it's like here. The disciples are all in the kingdom. They're all talking about, okay, Christ loves us. He's died for us. But really, which one of us is that nuanced favorite of his? Which one of us will really get the places of honor? And this is totally not in keeping with what Jesus has just said to them about the unity that the communion table provides for the church. And so he has to correct them. So uh, as, they're, as they're debating amongst themselves, look at verse 25. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I... Am among you as one who serves. What Jesus is doing is he's telling them their behavior to figure out who's highest up and who deserves the place of honor is in keeping with the world's way of thinking about things and not in keeping with the kingdom's way of thinking about things. Now, sometimes when we talk about the world and the kingdom, as Christians, we can fall into this danger of thinking uh, the world is uh, everything we see material in front of us, and the kingdom is a spiritual kind of thing. And what Jesus is talking about when he's saying the, the way the Gentiles, the lords of the Gentiles do, he's saying those who are outside of the covenant people, this is how they behave. And those who are in the new covenant people behave in a different kind of way. That's not out there abstract. That's tangible in the church, how the body behaves towards one another. It is, it is expected if someone's not a believer, unconverted, that they would, when they get power and authority, that they would use that to better themselves and to promote themselves. That's normal and expected. That's how you get ahead in life. That's how you make job advancements. Uh, that's how many people grow churches. Uh, you, you try to, uh, by stepping on other people and using your authority over others, you try to gain dominance and influence and all the rest. Our world uses many tactics to gain influence over one another. Uh, women have different tactics than men do. Men uh, use tactics. Uh, everyone uses whatever they can to gain influence and ultimately to gain positions of authority over other people. 
That's the way the world works. And when I say the world, I mean the unconverted people. And oftentimes, unfortunately, as the disciples have just shown, sometimes Christians can do this as well. Sometimes those who are in the kingdom can behave as not in keeping with the ethics of God's people. But God's people are called to different, to behave differently. They are called to follow what Jesus does, uh, which Luke doesn't record for us. John, John fills it in a little bit. Uh, Jesus is the one who has served his disciples in, in the context here. He's the one who they've seen washing one another's feet. He, he's the one who goes before them as a servant. Uh, Luke's telling us this already. Luke, he's the one who goes before as a servant, not to lord authority over them, but to die for them. That's what he has just finished saying in the supper. So he's saying, so why are you debating about which one of you is going to have the position of dominance and prominence over one another when I have not modeled that for you even one bit of my earthly ministry? If you want to know what it's like to be in the kingdom, you are to be the one who serves. Let the one who's most equipped and gifted and called by the Holy Spirit be the one who spends their life pouring into others. Let the one who is, most str- let the one who is strongest be the one who serves most. Don't don't be the kind of people who use your influence and your strength and your charisma and all that God has given you to jockey for authority and sway and power within the people of God as though you can can do that kind of thing. Now, the, the sad reality is you can do that kind of thing in a church. But what it ends up doing is it ends up killing the local church if that kind of thing happens. Uh, There are churches even that you could go to today you can see, for example, in the, in the New Testament in Corinth, but it, it extends obviously today, um, where, where people use worldly behaviors and sinful activities in the life of the church. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that God isn't with the church or that these are unconverted people. What it means is the church is very unhealthy when that kind of dynamic is at play. So uh, what are we to do then as Christians? We are to follow in the example of Christ and recognize That leadership in the church, responsibility in the church, gifting in the church, means service. It means that you don't use your authority to lord it over other people, but you use whatever God has given you to serve other people. Um, I've been reading a book lately about uh, uh, pastoral care, and the author of this book talks about the two different models of pastoral care, the contemporary model and the classical model, and the we won't surprise you, the contemporary model is very much be charismatic, be winsome, lead from the front, and be uh, like, a, like a superstar for your people. And, uh, and, and don't necessarily know them personally. You're, you're really responsible to, to be seen from the front, almost like a mascot. Uh, the opposite of that would be the classical model of pastoral care, which would be to be in the trenches with the people of God. So who are those in the church that are, we would say, most instilled with responsibility? It's the elders, pastors of the church. Uh, That is never to take place in a way where the elders don't know the sheep and don't know the people and simply tell people how it's going to be and what you are to do. Uh, As uh, the Nine Marks uh, series of books on eldership says it, uh, an elder should smell like the sheep. They should be down and dirty with the people of God. And this is what the disciples are to do. If they're going to really be given gifts by Christ to serve one another, to, to preach powerful messages, to be gifted by the Holy Spirit, to do all they're going to do, he's saying, don't take that power and that authority that I give you and use it to put other people under your feet so that you can advance in this world. Rather, you are to be the kind of people who, 
who expend yourself for the sake of one another. If you think about a, a living picture of this, uh, this is how husbands are called to love their wives. Uh, Christ has made you physically stronger. He has made you often able to deal with sleep deprivation in a better way. There are many physical benefits that men have over women. And the way the world would say it is, if we acknowledge those, that means abuse is going to take place. People are going to wrongly treat one another. What, what, uh, what Paul says in Ephesians is, um, husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Which means everything that God has given you, a strength, asset, ability, gift, resource, finances, all the rest, you are to use not for your own benefit, but for their benefit. That is a practical visual picture of what Jesus is calling the apostles to here. He's saying, I've give, I'm going to give you these amazing gifts, but you are to serve one another with that gifting. You are not to lord it over one another. That's how the kingdom ethic works. And then he continues uh, by, by giving them kind of a future encouragement. And so we've, we've already seen his, his provision for them in his corrective instruction. Now we see it by way of a future reward. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, uh, this is not saying that if you're a Christian, you're a really faithful Christian, you're going to get your own kingdom to rule over. Uh, this is a command or instruction specifically given to the apostles. And they are told if they are faithful to steward the kingdom of God while he is absent, we'll see this in the book of Acts, uh, they're also going to be the ones who will sit judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to be the ones judging the people of God. This is, uh, we would say, apostolic, not necessarily for all Christians ever. Uh, but the encouragement, uh, what, what benefit is it to lay your life down as a, as a believer? What, what is the benefit of, to the apostles if they are persecuted unto death, which almost all of them are, except for one who dies a natural death? What, what benefit is, is in their future? Well, there's this future reward. They will be in authority in the kingdom. That's a future reward for them. What he's, what he's saying is, what I ask of you, I also know how to give you reward on the other end. He's saying, I'm asking you to lead the church by serving and laying your life down for the church. What's the reward on the other side? You will be as kings over this church judging it. Now, what does that mean for, for you and I as Christians? It does not mean that we will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The closest uh, other text that might allude to something like that is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, uh, don't you know that you are to judge angels? And uh, no, if you read commentaries, no one really knows exactly what's going on there. But the point is, Christians are in some sense charged with authority and with responsibility and will be given that authority in, in the kingdom. We don't know exactly what it looks like. But suffice it to say, Christian, whatever God calls you to, whatever he gifts you for, whatever he calls you to serve in in the church, he knows how to reward you for your service. He knows how to give you satisfaction in him. He knows how to provide for you in the kingdom in a way that will make all of your sufferings and all of your trials and all of your pain worth it. And it is true that those of us who are more responsible, more gifted, are more responsible to serve. But this uh, does not, it is not helpful in this case to speculate about if I serve this much or I'm gifted in this capacity, then I'll get X percentage of the kingdom, right? That's not what he's asking. He's not, that's not what he's instructing here. 
He's simply saying to them, when I ask you to serve, just, just so you know, that service is rewarded in eternity. That's what he's saying. So we've seen his, his, his providence then in both his, his instruction to correct the disciples' false understanding. Um, he, he's leading now by example. And he gives them this kind of instruction of future reward of what they might anticipate. And you can see how practical all of this is, right? He's speaking to them, to their situation, to what their needs are. So he's corrected their misunderstanding. Now he's going to give a specific warning, again, a very practical provision that he's making. And he's going to warn them. He's, he's going to talk to them uh, specifically about how they are about to be shaken up. Uh, and if you're wondering, well, what on earth does this have to do with me? This is talking to Simon Peter. Um, Christ cares for you in the same way that he cares for Peter, and we'll, we'll get there. So, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So, let's pause there. Verse 31, uh, Jesus refers to Simon in an affectionate sense. We've seen this a couple of times in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you can think about when Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom. When he's speaking to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha. When he's speaking over Jerusalem, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So the double repetition is, a, is an affectionate way of addressing someone, right? We've seen that already. In this case, he says to him, Simon, Simon. So he's not, he's not talking harshly to him. He's speaking tenderly to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, uh, Jesus is speaking specifically to Simon Peter, but uh, if you have uh, a certain number of English translations would footnote that you that occurs in, the, uh, in verse 31, Satan demanded to have you. Uh, that is a, this is a little nerdy, that's a plural you. In English, we would say, we don't really have a plural you, so we would say y'all. So if, if, uh, if what Jesus is saying here is he's speaking specifically to Simon Peter, but he's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to sift you. He, does, he demanded to sift the disciples. He demanded to try you. To, he's saying to Simon particularly, Satan demanded to try all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. So, so he's speaking specifically to Peter, but speaking about what's going to happen to all of the disciples. It's a plural. And then here's what he says to Peter specifically. But I have prayed for you, that's singular, talking to Peter. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan demanded to sift the disciples, but Christ prayed specifically for Peter, that Peter's faith not, might not fail, and he would ultimately be the one to go and to restore his brothers. So here we have Christ's provision by means of a warning. And as it becomes clear in the text, uh, Peter does not really heed this warning carefully. In fact, he, he just kind of dismisses it. But uh, we are to learn from this that, that Christ's provision sometimes takes not just not instruction to correct our false understandings, but also warnings about what's coming ahead. Sometimes Christ provides for us by telling us what we might anticipate. Uh, if you're ever driving on the road um, and you've ever driven over a bridge, sometimes you might see a yellow sign right before the bridge that says, caution, icy when rain. Right? Sometimes bridges have that sign, uh, especially in the wintertime, you're to heed that. Because when you're driving on a normal road, there's no water underneath it, so there's not really a danger of it freezing over. But uh, bridges in particular have a tendency to become frozen more quickly than other parts of the road. And so oftentimes there will be a sign posted in front of it saying, it'll be icy when it's wet or icy when cold. 
And so you'll see bridges with that sign. What's the purpose of the warning? The purpose of that warning is that you would listen to the warning and therefore drive appropriately in light of that warning sign. Christ provides for Peter by telling him, hey, here's what's coming up ahead. And I want you to remember my instruction so that when this situation unfolds, you don't despair. You remember that I warned you that this was going to happen. Uh, this is like uh, when we are, as Christians told, um, there will be those who leave us. This is 1 John, right? 1 John chapter 2. There are those who would leave the fellowship of the Christians. Are we to be concerned, confused, uh, bewildered by that? No. Uh, we are to be encouraged because John told them that's exactly what was going to happen. Some people will apostatize from the faith. You are to expect that and know that and trust that that is God sifting the church, not him not him losing any of those whom he has called to faith. Here, uh, Simon has warned that he is going to be shaken. The, all the twelve will be shaken. But he is specifically told that he will be strengthened because Christ prayed for him. In this warning, Christ anticipating Simon's uh, denial of him, we see that Christ extends his grace to Peter's failure. As one commentator says it, he knows our failure. That is, God knows our failure, and he still extends his hand graciously to the believer who trusts in him. So all of what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you're going to fail. I prayed for you that you won't fail all the way to zero. And when I restore you, when I restore you by grace and forgiveness, I want you to turn around and encourage the others. So we have Christ's provision by means of a warning, we have his provision by means of his forgiveness, which he ex he's extending ahead of time to Peter. And we also have his provision by means of prayer. Jesus prays for Peter about something Peter didn't even know was going to happen until this very moment. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you, right? So Peter doesn't know he's going to deny Jesus. He's just being told that that's going to happen. And, and Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. So Jesus already anticipated ahead of time what was coming and prayed on Peter's behalf ahead of time for that thing. What does that mean? Well, it means, one, that God knows all things. But not only that, but his, his providence is such that he intimately cares for you in all that you will face in your life. So as a Christian, let's say you get blindsided by something that happens in your life, in a relationship, at your job, in your workplace, when you are blindsided by something that's, that you did not see coming, you can hear these words, Christ has already known it, expected it, anticipated that you would face that thing and feel that way, and he's already interceding and providing for you ahead of time in that situation. Now, his provision does not mean that Peter's not going to go through the trial, you notice. His provision is such that he can graciously restore Peter in and through the trial. So what that means is, uh, just because Christ is providing for you doesn't mean you're ever going to suffer. In fact, it almost guarantees and invites suffering, because Christ's providence is most seen in the suffering of his people. But what it does mean is he never abandons you, leaves you, or leaves you to your own means and strength in any kind of trial, temptation, suffering, you name it. He prays for Peter. He warns Peter that this is going to happen. He extends forgiveness to Peter. And then one more thing we can see from this text. He gives us, others, 
who will also be able to encourage us. Now, this is seen in Peter being told that after he fails and is restored, he's supposed to go and restore his brothers, right? So you see this in the text. And when you have turned, again, this is verse 32, strengthen your brothers. When God extends to us gifts, spiritual gifts, when he restores to us grace and forgiveness and comfort and assurance, sometimes, oftentimes, he equips us with maturity and strength and all the rest so that we could turn to our brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them and be his tool of restoration in their life as well. Or another way we could say it is if you are going through a trial as a Christian, one of the best resources you can lean on as God's ahead-of-time providence for you is other Christians whom you know and who can pray for you and who can care for you and who can encourage you. Let's say you're particularly discouraged because of a certain sin that you've been struggling with forever. Well, perhaps Christ has uniquely gifted one Christian with a word of encouragement for you, and you just need to tell them, hey, I'm feeling down this week because I'm at it again. And they can say, well, let me remind you of Christ's forgiveness that he extends to you. Let me pray for you right now to have you feel his grace in this moment. There's all kinds of ways in which the body, other believers, are a means of grace to us in our lives. They extend the hands and fellowship of Christ to us. In this case, if we're being very narrow as we think through this, uh, this is God specifically gifting Peter to equip the 12. We might say the flow down of that is he equips the 12 to equip the church, and he equips the church with future people who will sustain them, namely the uh, pastor teachers. So there are those who have been gifted by God to sustain other Christians, and they are called to use their gifting for the sustenance of others. What that means is, as a Christian, you should never find yourself alone, without a place to turn, and people you can have pray for you, talk to you, reason with you, especially when you are going through something difficult. If you wait, if you wait until something difficult is at hand to seek out this kind of encouragement, uh, you will often find uh, within yourself no will to go forward and to form new relationships and to get plugged in or anything like that. That's why uh, we are as Christians called to always be part of the body together with one another so that others can sustain us and encourage us when we are at our weakest. So there we see Christ's providence for, for the disciples uh, in his instruction so far uh, to correct their false beliefs, his promise of future reward, his warning to Peter, his prayer that he intercedes for us on our behalf, and his, uh, his revelation that Peter is to be the one who's going to strengthen the others. Um, and then we see that he's going to extend his, his active provision for his disciples very tangibly by giving them uh, prior examples to look back on. So you'll see this uh, in verse 35. When I sent you with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. They lacked nothing. Verse 36, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Now, we'll get to the scripture in a second. What he's saying to them is, okay, I'm giving you these instructions. I'm giving you this warning. I've told you I'm going to pray for you. Uh, I'm asking you a little bit to step out on a limb and trust me here. But his trust is not without warrant. What he's just going to tell them is, hey, remember other times where I've similarly asked you to trust me 
where I've similarly given you particular instructions to follow, where I've similarly told you this is the circumstance you will face, how did it go for you in those previous moments in your life? In the way he phrases it, did you lack anything? They said, no, we didn't lack anything. So he's saying, my trust that I'm asking you to extend to me in the future is not without basis in reality. It's not without basis even in your own history, even within your own lives. Very practically, whenever, whenever God calls you to faith, he never calls you to a blind, unreasoning faith or a blind trust in him. People do that uh, of one another. They'll say, just trust me on this. And what they mean is, I know that my track record isn't good. I know that I'm pretty much untrustworthy in every aspect and, and view, but you, I just need a, I need a credit of, of trust from you, and I'll promise I'll make it good, right? You should, you should usually not extend trust to people like that. What, God, what, what Jesus is saying here is not just trust me on this, even though I sound crazy, even though I'm asking you to do hard things. What he's saying is, trust me because I've proven trustworthy. Trust me because I've shown you that when, when I ask you to go out on a limb and trust me, I have sustained you in the past. This would be like when, when God is walking uh, through, through Moses and the, and the Israelites in the wilderness and he leads them out of, of Egypt with all the plagues, and, and he sustains them in that. He, cro- he lets them cross the Red Sea, sustains them in that. And the first day on the other side of the Red Sea, they say, we will die of thirst, because uh, surely it was better for us in Egypt. And, and all, you can, on all you can think as a reader is, why don't they just trust him already? Because he's shown himself trustworthy. He's shown himself to deliver mightily through miracles. Why can't they just trust him? Now, I might say that as a, as a Christian, particularly with with all of the history of the church behind us, with, with the full counsel of God's word, uh, we are more responsible to trust God than anyone who has come before us. Because not only do we have his testimony for all the saints prior, uh, but we also have uh, the lived experience of Christian tradition and Christian history, which tells us of God's unique providence for the church in all of its needs. He has sustained the church through thick and thin, uh, through seasons of plenty and through seasons of want. He has sustained Christians and believers through the centuries and through the ages. And if, and, if you, and if you have been a Christian for any length of time, no doubt you know his, his providence for you in your life in particular. How he calls you to faith, but he also sustains you in that faith. He calls you to sacrifice and he sustains you in that. He calls you to trust him, and he gives you confidence and assurance to continue to trust him. Christianity is not a blind faith. And he's not calling his disciples to blindly follow him. He's saying, I've already provided for you. And how did it go for you then? Here, trust me again now. And his instructions are telling. So previously, uh, he sends them out with basically nothing. And he says, wherever you go, uh, there will be a house there that will feed you, house you, all the rest. Uh, this is when he sends them out as the 12 and then as the 72 on uh, evangelistic journeys to go and preach the gospel. Now, he, now things are taking a turn, and they're taking a turn in light of the cross. So we're, we're not going to get there just yet, but um, when he's quoting from Isaiah 53, where he says, uh, Scripture must be fulfilled in me, he's saying, in light of the cross, I have new instructions for you. Uh, we, we see these instructions played out in the book of Acts, by the way where Christ's supernatural provision for his disciples is something that he begins to do by means of one another in the church. So, uh, for instance, when the disciples had nothing to eat, 
they, they didn't worry about food because wherever, whatever city they would go to would house them and feed them and provide for them. But when you get to the New Testament church, when there's a famine anticipated in Jerusalem, well, what did the church do? They hear about the famine that's coming. They go to all the other churches and they round up giving so that the Jerusalem church can be sustained. So uh, what he's saying here is, I provided for you uh, in one way at first. Now in light of the cross, let me provide for you in a different way. And in the, and in the second way, he's basically saying, equip yourself for what is necessary. So uh, let the one who has a money bag take it. So if you, have, if you have a way to store money, a purse, take it. Likewise, a knapsack, uh, like a lunchbox, right? Take it. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak, which would be like an extra garment, and buy one. So buy a sword. What he's saying is, I'm, I, I, previously I told you to, to have no, no uh, foresight into what you needed to provide. I'll provide for you. Now he's saying, my provision takes shape in instructing you to be wise to prepare. My provision takes shape in instructing you to think ahead and to think wisely about what is in the future. So that when you see the church in Acts, they, they give out of their own material possessions to one another to provide for one another. As is clear uh, in what happens later in Luke and in the early church's resistance to uh, persecution, uh, when he says, take a sword, he's not saying, I want you to conquer the world by means of military force. He's simply saying the sword is a, is a means of self-protection at, on a journey because journeys are dangerous, right? Sometimes robbers attack you on the highway. Take a basic means of provision, just like you would take food, which is a basic means of provision. Just like you, Christian, uh, lock your door at night. It's a basic means of provision. You stock your fridge. It's a basic means of provision. He's saying that. Exercise wisdom as you live in this world. He's saying that specifically to the 12. That changes. That's something that was not expected of them before the cross because he's seen them uniquely. Now, in light of the cross, after the resurrection, he's giving them these new instructions, which, which we follow today. Uh, for instance, as a church, we have and we keep a budget. We watch our finances. We, we encourage giving. And we do all of that because we anticipate ahead of time that people might have needs. They might have uh, weaknesses. They might have ailments. And so the church stocks up resources and provides and thinks ahead about what the church might need and it sustains those provisions for others. That's just applying wisdom as Christians. So that's all in light of or after the cross. Now, uh, we need to say a few words about this quotation. Uh, We won't turn there, uh, but if you've never read it before or if you just want to have a delightful experience of the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53, which is quoted here, is a wonderfully rich text of scripture. I know I've said that like the last six weeks in a row we've been in Luke because there's all these wonderful quotations from the Old Testament, the New Covenant from Isaiah, all over. In this case in particular, uh, what Jesus is quoting is what Yahweh says to the servant in light of what the servant does. So it's at the end of the servant psalm, it's towards the end of Isaiah 53. And this is, you can, you can hear God's words, uh, where, where God says, of the servant, I will reward him plentifully because he was numbered or he chose to be numbered among the transgressors. So God speaking and, and, and exclaiming his pleasure in the one who will die in this way uh, or be numbered among the transgressors. And so what Jesus is saying is that, that text is talking about me, what I'm about to fulfill. And you might say as a Christian, I take that for granted. I know that that's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. But uh, you might not know that there's a school of interpretation on Isaiah 52 and 53 and really all of the servant songs in Isaiah that says, what re- this is not talking about Jesus. That's a church distortion of the text. This is just talking about corporate Israel and their suffering as a persecuted people. 
So what, do we say, what would you say to that if you, if you ever encounter someone who's, who's a, a, Jewish, uh, a Jewish person who would hold that position? This is not talking about any Messiah. This is talking about the, the people of Israel. They are suffering, and therefore God will reward them in their suffering. Well, let's say you have two people who debate about the meaning of a text. The, the meaning of the text is disputed. On the one hand, you have Jesus who says, hey, I'm about to fulfill this, this scripture. And you have the later rabbinical interpretations, as we find in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, which says, actually, this is talking about Israel. It's not talking about the Messiah. Jesus was, was wrong when he interpreted it that way. But who do you believe? Two knowledgeable sources that would both claim basically opposite interpretations of the text. Well, what would you do if you were listening to two people debate about some topic, and it seems to you as though both of their opinions are equally viable? Let's say you overhear someone at lunch talking or reasoning about some issue, and you don't know much about the issue. You're kind of coming in it like brand new, and both people seem like they're equally knowledgeable on that subject. You can pick your subject. I, I was thinking about giving you an example subject, but I thought, unless that be too controversial, and you actually have a strong opinion on whatever that thing is. So um, imagine someone's debating about some issue, and you don't have a strong opinion. You just want to see kind of how it unfolds. And in the course of that conversation, and as they go back and forth, you think, both of them are making strong and good points. So you don't know what to conclude. Well, then let's say sometime later, you find out that one of the people who was in that debate is a PhD level expert who wrote their dissertation in that topic. And the other person is just some, some random person who's read a couple of articles on the internet and therefore has a strong opinion. Which one would you be more likely to trust? Right? In, the, in the moment, it seemed as though both of them were making equally good points to your untrained ear. Who do you trust? Well, I would say I would be more likely to trust the one who's an expert in whatever that field is than the person who's randomly off the street and has read a couple of uh, articles on the internet about it, right? So what do we do in this case? Jesus says, this is about me, and later Jewish interpretation would say this is not talking about any Messiah. Well, one of them resurrects, and, and the other ones don't. And so who do you trust? Well, you trust the one who has the credibility, even if you would say, I, I actually don't have the skills as a modern English reader of the Old Testament to adjudicate between someone who's fluent in Hebrew and another person who's fluent in Hebrew from 2,000 years ago as they were debating over the text. I don't have the skills hermeneutically to, to, to see which one's right. So who do you trust? You trust the one who is an expert or has credibility in that field that the other ones do not have. Jesus has credibility that other rabbis and interpreters of the Old Testament do not have, namely that he makes all these claims, then he's crucified for making these claims, and then he resurrects and says, see, I'm vindicated. I was right about what I said. So the, the, the resurrection is, we would say, the tie-breaking vote on whether or not we could trust Jesus' interpretation or later rabbinical interpretation of what those texts mean. As it is recorded by Jesus, even if I can't argue or enter into a debate with a rabbi and and beat them hermeneutically on this text. I would say, well, Jesus, certainly fluent in Arabic, is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with his contemporaries and saying, this is about me, and he has credibility like no one else has. So we trust him. We trust his interpretation, even if we can't reason it perfectly together ourselves. So uh, what do we learn in, in these verses, in, in this whole uh, structure of Jesus' provision? Well, as I said uh, at the beginning, Christ's provision for his people is not out there, blind trust that you are called to do as faithfulness as a Christian. Christ's provision for his people is tangible and felt and real. 
He gives specific instructions to their misunderstandings. He gives encouragement to their weakness. He, pray, he says, I pray specifically for you. He warns them particularly about what they are to face. He, look at all the practical ways in which Jesus provides for the twelve. Well, he provides for you and I as, as his church in the exact same way, practically and as we need. Consider how he calls us in the Lord's Prayer to pray for daily provisions, daily sustenance. Give us our daily bread. Well, that's because he, he's going to provide that for us. He's going to provide us what we need. And if ever you doubt that, consider how he has sustained other Christians in other centuries, and consider how he's been faithful to you in your life up to this point. Do you know his faithfulness in your own life as an example that can be a testimony to your future self when you struggle to trust? Or even as he extends his grace to Peter, he says, uh, I will forgive you. Even after you've fallen, I will forgive you. Do you know what comfort it is to know that at, even as you have not sinned yet, Jesus is saying of Peter, I know you're going to fall in the future. I know you're going to sin. I will restore you. Do you know the kind of comfort that gives to a Christian? Do you know that comfort yourself? To know that whatever sin you might commit tomorrow or next week is not cause for despair or cause for doubt or cause for uh, just wailing and, and moaning and, and, and just ashes on your head and sackcloth and saying, I, I am just the worst of people. Instead, it's a cause to comfort, to encouragement, because he tells us ahead of time, you're going to fall in this way, but I will forgive you. I will sustain you. Do you know that comfort of your king? As he says ahead of time, I will provide for you also in this way, by forgiving you of your sins. Consider the ultimate example of Jesus' sustenance of his people. He dies on a cross for them, taking care of whatever sin debt that they owed, and doing that in their place. This is the ultimate provision. Imagine saying, I give my life over to Jesus because I trust that he will forgive me of my sins, but I can't trust him tomorrow as I interact with a coworker, and I don't know how to be faithful in that moment. That's like, if we're arguing from the most significant thing to believe him and trust him in to less significant things, if you have trusted him to forgive you of all your sins, uh, you can trust him with the next year of your life, even if you don't know what it looks like. You can trust him with that difficult situation you're currently walking through, even if you don't know exactly what it looks like. You can trust him to provide for you, not in some ethereal out there way, but in tangible and practical and in many cases, visible ways that you will be able to see and know and understand. It is because Christ provides for his church specifically, and Christian, he also provides for you specifically. You are also one whom he prays for, whom he cares for, whom he longs to sustain. And that is what Luke teaches us here in these verses. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for this word to us which serves as a sustaining instruction for our hearts and our minds. Lord, we confess that we often struggle to look into the future and into what is unknown, into what we did not anticipate. And we, we struggle to trust you with things that we ourselves don't have a grasp on. Lord, would you give us your mercy to see how even if something is well beyond us, it is never beyond you how you sustain and provide for us, even in ways that we don't even regularly observe. Would you give us the grace and the eyes to see how you've sustained us even in the last week, even in the next week, that we would see your providence visibly, 
and it would give us encouragement and faith to continue to trust you in our walk as believers. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.